In your pew Bibles, you'll find the passage uh, of our study this morning, Romans chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1119. We do remind you to have with you, open before you, some copy, some version of God's Word as we read and study it uh, together this morning. As I mentioned earlier, I'm here in the pulpit this morning because Pastor Fisher is recovering from his surgery this past Tuesday. Lord willing, as we uh, finish part of this passage this morning, that is verses 6 through 11, we'll be doing 6 through 8 this morning, and then Lord willing next week, either in the morning if he is unable to preach uh, next Sunday morning as he continues to heal, then uh, if he is, then in the evening, we'll continue and finish out this most important section of this letter. If you've been following our study in the book of Romans uh, in the evenings, you know that we have come to the very beginning of what is really widely recognized as the most important section of this letter, chapters 5 through 8 which unfolds to us not only the great benefits of our justification, our being justified uh, by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, but also, as we've noted, provides a very, very solid foundation for our assurance in this salvation of which Paul is speaking here in the book of Romans. It is ours by the grace of God, and it is ours securely. Remember, these chapters, as we've already noted, teach us that what is now ours in Christ is ours both now and forever. And we can see this in what we've studied thus far in this opening chapter of this section. Paul begins it by telling us, since we have already been justified by faith. Uh, Paul treats this as a given for those who have indeed trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace and by faith. The one who is justified, as Paul has described in all of these chapters, like Abraham, who was justified by faith, not by works, that person cannot at any point become unjustified. We cannot go from a right standing with God, a right relationship, back into a wrong standing or relationship with God. That's what Paul means when he says, since we have already been justified by faith. If that is true of you and me sitting here this morning, then the benefits or blessings that are ours are countless. And Paul is just highlighting a few in this section. What does it mean for us if we are in a right relationship with God that is justified by faith? Notice what Paul says. We have, verse 1, peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war, the enmity is over. It is done. And so we now have peace with him. And that peace is a lasting peace, an eternal peace. We'll never be, again, enemies of God. Because now, Paul says, we have, because of our justification, peace with God. But we also have access to God by faith. Paul puts it this way, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What he means is that we now have a free and bold access as believers justified by faith into the very presence of God. 
That was not true, we know, in the Old Testament, as God pictured that through various ways. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God in that once a year. But now the veil has been torn down in the very flesh of Christ, and we have this bold and free access to God. You will never not have access to God if you're a believer here this morning. That is yours both now and forever. What you do with it, how you take advantage of it, how you draw near to God each and every day and each and every moment is for you. But your access is there always because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Even in your sin, you have access to go to a father who delights to show mercy and grants forgiveness to those who repent of their sins. But he adds even more. He says, we have a joy now, or we rejoice, he says, in the hope of the glory of God. That is a promise that we will see God's glory. Moses asked to see God's glory. God says, you cannot see me and live. But now being justified in Christ, we have the promise that one day we will behold the very glory of God. We see it now in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will see it then in all of his glory. We will behold the glory of God. That is our great hope, and it is a promise that God gives. And right now, it fills us with joy. That joy can never be taken away, ever. It is ours now. Last week, we were reminded that there is even more as if that were not enough because we know what is ours in Christ and we know the great work that God is doing in our lives, having justified us. Now he is sanctifying us, making us like Christ because we know that. Paul says that we can actually rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. What a incredible statement. We can rejoice while we're suffering in the very midst of our sufferings. And he says we can do that because we know, and he emphasizes that, remember, knowing, he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance or patience. We're able to endure even the trials of this life because in suffering, God is blessing us. We who are justified by faith and we are learning to endure and patiently wait for God's work to be done in our lives. And that endurance, he says, produces in us a new character, a new character conformed to the image of Christ. It's how he does it through the fires of suffering, of trials and affliction. That endurance in the midst of all that suffering produces in us a character which one of us has not met people who have suffered greatly and have appeared to us as men and women of incredible depth of character. It's because of this process that belongs to those who are justified by faith. And that character then produces a hope. And I want you to see the hope here, not uh, completely different from the hope in the previous verse, the promise of the glory of God, but a hope that works in us in the midst of our suffering so that our hope is renewed for that glorious promise that we will see one day. And then he throws into that whole mix what God is doing in the midst of all of this, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, and because of them, we know that God has shed abroad or poured out into our hearts his love. 
And we noted that so often as we read the stories of the martyrs, we try to grasp and understand, could I ever do that? Could I ever suffer like the previous martyrs and saints of old have done? The answer is, if you are justified by grace and through faith, yes, God in the midst of our sufferings pours out his love to us so that we know that all that is happening is from the hands of a father who loves us. And that love is lavishly poured out so that we can stand and endure and our character can be changed and the hope is renewed and over it all the love of God is poured out upon us, causing us to remember his great and precious promises. Now all of this leads to where we are this morning in what are some of the most beautiful and amazing verses in the Bible and certainly in the book of Romans about the love that God has for us. This week and next week, as I mentioned, we'll look at this whole section, 6 through 11, but we'll do it in these two weeks. Would you stand as we hear God's word read? I'll be reading verses 6 through 11 so that you have the whole picture before you, and then, Lord willing, we'll study this passage together uh, and pray that God would bless it. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6 through verse 11. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified in his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading of his word as we remember that all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they always fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, bless your word now, which indeed stands forever, that we might know it deep within our hearts, that we might understand more of the inexpressible and beyond even knowing love of God for sinners like us. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's intentional, of course, as you no doubt know, intentional that Paul begins this section by a discussion of the love of God because he's already introduced it in verse five. He talks about a love that has been poured out or shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God, of course, as you think about the Bible and when it's mentioned and where, is probably one of the most familiar central ideas that we find in the Bible. Certainly the verse that is most well-known used to be held up at all kinds of sporting events, usually with a guy with that wild hair, if you're old enough to remember that. They had all kinds of debates about him, and even his life took different turns, but he would always hold up John 3.16, for God so loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. It is an understanding of the love of God that Paul 
breaks into prayer for the Ephesian believers in chapter three of that letter. He says these words, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. Notice how he prays may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We need strength by the spirit to even begin to know the depth, the width, the height and the breadth of the love that God has for us in his son. And he calls it a love that surpasses knowledge. Now that ought not to throw you off and say, well, we just can't know it, so let's not pursue it. No, Paul is praying that they would know it. So it's just a description of how we will never plumb the depths of that great love that he has for us this morning. And if you are in Christ always. So we pray with Paul that God would help us even in this brief study this morning to understand this love more. So how will we approach it? We'll do it as we have often done in other times by looking at this passage with three questions to ask of it. And the answers are in verses six through eight as we study them this morning. The first question is this, what, what kind of love is this of which Paul speaks? A love that has been shed abroad and poured out into our hearts. Well, the first thing we see begins in verse six when Paul says, that it was a love that was demonstrated or shown at the right time. It's a love at the right time. It's opportune. It comes at the perfect time. What does this mean as Paul says this? I think it relates a little bit, certainly, uh, to Galatians 4 when he talks about Jesus coming and in his birth. Uh, in Galatians 4, he calls the time in which Jesus comes the fullness of time. Or to relate it to those who are with child, it's the due date of his love, as it were, as one writer notes. It refers to a love that is planned by God, a love that is purposed by God, a love that is rooted and grounded in eternity past and in the counsels of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the way he puts it, as you know, in Ephesians 1 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the world ever existed, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, his own son. And so this sort of throw a line here at the right time is really referencing the love that God has for us who are justified by faith. Those for whom Christ has died, he has a love that goes far back, as far back as you can possibly go to the very eternal counsels of the Godhead who determined to love a people like you and like me all whom God would choose, for whom Christ would die, 
to which the Spirit would apply the work of Christ. That people, you and I this morning, if we are believing in Jesus, are those who have been loved, as the Bible says, with an everlasting love. That's not just going forward, that's going backwards that we have been loved by God in this way. And, but there needed to be a due date, a fullness of time, the right time where God would display and demonstrate that love. And this is the time of which Paul is speaking and we'll see it in a moment. It is the cross. That is the place, the time, the fullness of time of which Paul has in mind here. So the first thing we can say about the kind of love, it is a love at the right time, planned before by God. The second thing we can note, and I think this is true of the whole, is it's an extraordinary love. It's an extraordinary love. I think that's what verse 7 is really getting at when he uh, sort of mentions this idea, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He's using it as a comparative. Look at human love, he says, and look at the rare and scarce instances in which a person would die for someone who is both righteous and good. Now, the word here that Paul uses in verse 5, as well as in verse 8, when he talks about the love of God and his love shown to us, that word, as you can guess, is agape. It's that love that God himself shows in this context, that selfless, sacrificing, other-centered love demonstrated in the sovereign love of God towards sinners. But Paul is trying to draw a comparison to help us understand this love which is beyond knowledge, as Paul says elsewhere. A love beyond knowledge has to be understood in our context. So he says there are righteous and good people that perhaps someone would dare consider dying for. Now, all of us have examples, maybe not personally, meaning in our own families or uh, even people that we may know, but we've read stories, haven't we, of this self-sacrificing kind of love. In families, husbands or wives giving their lives, whether it be in medical procedures or just by stopping some danger and putting themselves in front of someone that they love. We've read stories of that. Some of the greatest novels and the books we read, some of the ones that touch our hearts the most are, are these expressions of love, selfless love shown. But it's rare, Paul says, scarcely will a person do that. The idea of righteous and good, we might see these two as different people, righteous person or a good person. I think I agree with Calvin and not Luther on this. And Calvin says, listen, it's really the same person he's talking about, whether they be righteous or good. It's all scarce, he said. But we've seen these images before. Among friends in wartime, we hear of people who are willing to die for someone else. It occasionally happens, but it's, it's scarce, it's rare. Dr. Boyce tells a wonderful story in his commentary about this kind of rare and scarce love that he learned from his predecessor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, concerning a brother and sister, and this is a true story. The sister apparently was born in this family with a very crippling condition and she needed surgery. And after the surgery, she needed a blood transfusion. 
Her brother was asked, because he's her brother, to volunteer for that transfusion, and he did so willingly. He didn't understand what it would all mean, but he did it because he loved his sister. After it was all over, he turned to the doctor and he said, Doc, how long do I have before I croak? <laughs> what does that tell you? His little mind, his understanding, he thought what he was doing was giving up his life for his sister. He thought he was sacrificing himself, how happy he was to know it was just his blood. He had plenty of it. It was all back. The doctor understood, of course, what the boy had expected when he volunteered. He thought he was giving his life. Those stories warm our hearts. They remind us of the, uh, what people call today the goodness that still exists in humanity, right? But it's completely different, and it's incomparable to the love that God has shown. That love, he says, surpasses knowledge, and it's extraordinary. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. We're amazed at these stories, but this love goes far beyond it. And he's going to tell us how in just a few moments. The second thing, the second question, we've seen what kind of love this is. But we also see in this passage, to whom was this love shown? I've already said some things that sort of lead us in the direction that we need to go ultimately and theologically, right? This love that God has demonstrated and shown in Christ on the cross is for his elect, for the people for whom Christ came to die. Those are doctrines we hold and we preach according to God's word. This is for those who are justified, right? You can limit it that way. For those who have believed in Jesus and have been justified by his grace and through faith, who possess all of these benefits that Paul's rehearsing here. In the, in the language of the text, it is the us of the text, right? It is the us. God shows his love for us. It is Christ died for us. Who are the us? It's God's people, those for whom Christ indeed came to die. But Paul actually describes those people in ways that are very, very helpful. And you can see them there first in verse 6. For while we were still weak, no strength, no ability. Now, some of you who know the the doctrines of grace, you know that this relates very directly to what we call total depravity or total inability. This idea of weakness is not a physical weakness. This is a moral inability, a moral inability that we are dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead, not very, very, very infinite, very sick, but dead without life. Weak in the fullest sense of the word with respect to moral ability. We were are without strength and we were unable to do anything, not a thing, to save ourselves. That's what Paul means. If left to ourselves, we would perish in our sin. We have no ability to save ourselves, no ability to respond to some action or work of God towards us, apart from his grace at work within us, changing us. And so that's what this idea of weakness is who we were. You're beginning to see, or we're beginning to see, the extraordinary nature of this love. This is not to those who deserve it in some way, who've done some really great and neat things that God takes notice of and says, I think I'm going to show my love to you. 
No, it's while we were still in our weakness, our moral inability, that Christ died for us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on again in verse 6. Christ, at the right time, died for the ungodly. The simplest expression or explanation of ungodly is unlike or not like God. God being holy, thrice holy, we being not holy. In fact, the Bible calls it this God ungodliness. We saw it in the response this morning from Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, that is, does not seek to earn favor from God by their works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When we come to Christ, when we come to God through Christ, we believe, we must believe that this is us. We are ungodly. And the only reason we're coming is because of the work of God's grace in us. So Paul says we were weak, we were ungodly, and then he adds a third in verse 8, while we were still sinners, still ongoing. So it's not like we put it aside for a while when God kind of showed his smiling face towards us and we suddenly put away our sins. No, while we were actively sinning, think of the cross and what was happening on the cross. Think of the mocking of the, the two men, one on either side, both of them mocking Jesus while they were actively sinning. Jesus in his mercy, God in his mercy, changed the heart of one of those men while he was in the process of sinning. Think of the Roman centurion who came to Christ. We're focused on the cross, but you can take the focus off the cross wherever it happens. We were active in our sin, going one way, away from God, against his commandments, against his law. And in that moment, in our weakness, in our ungodliness, and sinning actively against him, that's when Christ died. That's when he died. Lost and enslaved to sin, guilty before him, by every standard, Christ died for us in that perfect time. Verse 10 adds another. We'll talk more next week. He calls us in verse 10, while we were enemies, at enmity with God. Remember the, 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 the things of our warfare, right, that we talked about. We, we want to lay those arms down. We don't want to fight against God anymore. The peace has come through what Christ has done. We don't want to take up those armaments again and fight against him. But we were, before all of this, we were those who would take those things up, who would cry out for God to come down so that we can put him on trial and condemn him. That's who we were. In a simple phrase, it is the title of the sermon. It is extraordinary love to those who are unlovely, even unlovable, right? You might even call it unlovable. We're curmudgeons, okay? That's who we are in a fancy sort of modern way. Love to the unlovely. To whom was this love shown? It was to people like you and people like me who before God are just simply unlovely, not worthy of love. There's nothing in us that would recommend it, nothing in us that would draw God's attention to us. The third question that we would answer then, or ask and then answer, is how, or we might say where, but how was this love shown? Paul is very clear. 
the focus of all of this, of the eternal counsels of the Godhead from eternity past, the focus of it all focuses on one central moment and time. It is at the cross. It is where Christ died. It's the cross is where we see this extraordinary love shown. God demonstrates it. He shows it at the cross. Begs the question, what happened at the cross? You know what happened at the cross. You know that the righteous went and suffered Jesus there at the cross, not for anything that he did. He was perfect in his obedience to the Father. You know that this event that took place on the cross was not just simply a man who had failed in his mission hanging on a tree outside of Jerusalem for all to mock. You know that there was something far greater going on at that cross than anyone with physical eyes could see. All they could see physically was a failed prophet who was hung, disciples who had all fled, and what they believed probably in the moment was a movement that was about to just peter out and end. It was, it was over. But we know, and Paul reminds us, that this is where love was shown to the unlovely, the ungodly, to sinners, to enemies of God, to those who were weak and their moral ability to do anything to save themselves. It was the substitute of the righteous one for the unrighteous. It was one standing in the place of another. It was a vicarious substitutionary atonement. It was our sin on our behalf and he in our place that was the place and the moment and the fullness of time when God would show to a watching world his love for sinners like you and like me. John writes, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love. Listen, in this is love. You want to know the definition? I do. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where did he become the propitiation for our sins? That means he was satisfying the wrath of his father not for his sins, but for the sins of all of those for whom he came to die. It was at the cross. It was at the cross that he propitiated the Father. The Father's wrath was turned away from us, whom he loved with this extraordinary love, because he was pleased, Isaiah says, to pour out his wrath, the full wrath, his wrath upon his one and only Son who stood in our place, that is love. That's the love that has been poured out in your heart. Lavishly, like the woman who broke the alabaster flask and poured it out on the feet of Jesus. That's what God has done. So the perfume of Christ fills our lives for all to see, right? That's the love that has been poured out and that love was demonstrated, seen, and shown most clearly, most fully 
at the cross of Jesus Christ. John Stott, one commentator notes, the words of John Stott, which I think are very helpful, and, and I won't try to go where Pastor Fisher went with math because I'm worse than he is, so I won't do any math, but I like this description. The more the cost of the gift to the giver and the less deserving of the recipient of that gift, the greater the love is seen to be. So put that math in your head and understand the more the cost of the gift to the giver, there was no higher cost that God would give than his one and only son. Nothing higher. There was no standard that God could go further up and say, okay, this is what I really want to give, my very best. No, he gave the very best in his son. And the less deserving of the recipient of that gift, weak, ungodly sinners who are enemies, you, you can't get much less deserving of a gift like this. The greater the love is seen to be. Measure it then on your own. Measure the love that you see at the cross and see if it is not, as Paul says, a most extraordinary love, a love that you will never find anywhere else but at the cross of Christ. That leads me to three things. I'm not sure why my mouth is so dry, but hey. My apologies in drinking in front of you. Number one, wonder and amazement. You can't walk away from this passage, I didn't this week, without pulling back in my chair. I can lean back in my chair in my office and just put my head back on the chair and look up to heaven and just praise God in wonder and amazement for such a love that he showed to me. We need to be taken up daily in the wonder of God's love for us, sinners that we are, to begin to comprehend what it means when we say so often, you know God loves you? You know God loves you? Well, where do you see that? Well, let me take you to the cross. I think the words of that very familiar American folk song that we sing captures it so well. All that is happening at the cross. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. The full measure of God's wrath that we deserved. I think there's no greater line than the line we'll sing as we close our service, written by Charles Wesley as he was utterly amazed by this love of God. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So how often are you amazed in wonder about God's love. How often do you think about it that way? How often do you lean yourself back in your chair, look up to the heavens and say, what an amazing love you have shown to me, undeserving as I am. Secondly, we have in this passage, I believe, hope for sinners, don't we? It is knowing and understanding this love of God that we actually find hope for sinners like you and like me. 
Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see how the message of the love of God, as Paul expresses it here, will give hope to those who truly come to understand their great need? You know, there are countless false teachers in the world today whose goal is to call the righteous to faith in Jesus, to tell them that God loves them just the way they are, to never speak of sin and of their great need, and to simply say to them that God loves you and has a plan to make your life better than it is now. Who wouldn't want to buy that? And thousands upon thousands upon thousands are flocking to that false message because Jesus said they would. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. I praise God every day I praise him that he brought me to himself the way he did. Just yesterday I had the great joy and privilege of sharing with a brother at Jack Jack's party actually. I was sharing my own story of conversion and how the Lord led me to a church where the first time in my life someone told me that I was a sinner and that I was an enemy of God, that by nature I really hated him and the things were not good between me and him. You see, I thought they were because I was a whole lot better than my friends. I've told you this before. They didn't tell me my life was fine and that Jesus could just make it a little better. They told me of a savior who died on a cross for the ungodly and that I was ungodly. They told me of a savior who died on a cross for rebels and I was a, really a rebel and at enmity with God. I didn't just need a little extra to get me along in life. I needed a savior to save me and to change me completely from the inside out. And only when by his grace I understood that truth did I see the true hope held forth to me in the cross. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. That's what I came to understand by the grace of God. I think another hymn writer, Joseph Hart, who wrote a hymn that we sing so often captures this idea of the hope that is offered to sinners like you and like me at the cross when he wrote that wonderful, wonderful hymn, Come Ye Sinners. It's based on Matthew 9 and Matthew 11. For I came not, Jesus said, to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Come to me then, all you who are all labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Perhaps you know these words well. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, come to Jesus and buy. Come ye weary and heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, but sinners, Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him 
and is this that he gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. And so if you are here this morning, believing that you are okay with God, and that what you really need is just a little help from Jesus, just like you got a little help from somewhere else and someone else, you will never understand the real and complete need of salvation. You will never know this extraordinary love until you first know that you are a sinner, weak, that you are ungodly, that you are his enemy. What you are is what God says you are. What you need is someone to save you from what you are, a savior who died for weak, helpless, ungodly sinners and rebels. And that savior is Jesus. And he's the only one. And so there is always hope for sinners. And I commend him to you this morning. But thirdly, I want to end this way and talk about love to God. I've already said that the love of verse 5 and the love of verse 8 is the love of God to us. Uh, but commentators, when they see this love of God, kind of go back and forth. What does he mean? Most people see it this way. It's pretty obvious, I think, to all of us. It's God's love to us. But many times it's not as clear. 2 Corinthians 5, for if we were beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us. Now, what does he mean? Our love for Christ constraining, pushing us forward, or his love to us constraining and pushing us forward. Most say in that context, well, both are fine. And we can say in many places, both are fine. Here, it's the one, not the other. It's his love to us. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something that's very important, very important. Knowing that this love to sinners, rebels, ungodly, enemies of Christ, knowing this love is what will drive you, empower you to love him. They are absolutely connected. You can't disconnect them. When that woman came to Jesus in Luke 7, you remember his words, therefore I tell you, he says, her sins which are many. Do you think she knew her sins? She sure did. Are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If you do not understand this passage and the love of God to you as weak and helpless, sinner and ungodly and an enemy of Christ, you will never love Christ. But when you see that love, as I did many years ago by God's grace, when you see it and when you come to know it, your heart screams to love him more. My Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior, thou art. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let us pray. Our Father, lift high the cross before our eyes. 
that we might see afresh even this morning the love of God to weak, helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies of Christ, that we might see it clearly and that we would, with all the saints, confess that in seeing that love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, it demands my soul, it demands my all. And so work in us, we pray, by your Spirit, shed abroad in our hearts this love, so that we might be known as those who love Christ above all things, and one another as you call us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.